we're going to go ahead and get into the Word today. You know, it's interesting. The, the way that people see the world, the way that people view the world, is uh, an interesting observation, shall we say. And um, I believe that there's something to be said about the way that believers need to see the world. Need to uh, observe, shall we say, the hot issues of the world. Uh, There's so many philosophies of life and philosophies of existence and how things got started and why we're here and who knows why we're here and so many philosophies out there concerning this. And uh, what I want to just hit you with for a little while today is the the worldview of a believer. The worldview of a believer. How should a believer see the world? And and I got to tell you this, that, uh, that there's something to be said about having the right pair of glasses on. Because some of the glasses with which we've seen the world in previous times, and especially for those that have uh, uh, come to the Lord later in life, and, and you've had uh, a, a period of life where the Lord wasn't part of your life, where the Lord wasn't influencing your life, where, where the Lord what was not allowed to be who he wanted to be in your life. And so there's that period of time there where uh, you get influenced by other things and other ways of thinking and other philosophies. But it is so vital for us as believers to have the right pair of glasses on because there is only one right pair of glasses to wear to, wear to really view this world and view it accurately. Many people have many ideas about many things. But ultimately, let God be true and every man a liar. And don't get mad at me for saying that because the book says it. I just quoted the book. <laughs> what is a worldview anyhow? Bottom line, it's a set of beliefs by which you understand the world, by which you view the world. And a believer's worldview is something that's based on the truth of the word of God. And it should affect the way that you think about every aspect of life. Now, now that's big. Let me mess with you for a minute. <laughs> it should affect the way you view every aspect of life. Here's the problem with, with m- many of us, what we've done is we've had our our spiritual life and then we've had this part of life and then we've had the way we raise our kids and here we have uh, the the, the kind of music we like to listen to and and here we have uh, uh, the the way we think about government and those kind of issues and and, and we've separated all these different areas of our life and, and, and so, so that anything that the word says and anything that, that, that the Lord has to say to us, somehow we've got this blocked into only the spiritual side of life. 
The Bible, you, you got to realize this, that the Bible is not just a spiritual book. That the Bible talks about how to deal with practical things in your life too. The Bible provides the source for a way to see things and a way to view things, not just in regards to spiritual things, not just in regards to Sunday morning, but also Monday morning. And uh, for, for too long, I'm convinced of this, that, that, that we've made that separation where, where this is the, the religious side of me and, and this is the other part of me. So, so that we've not allowed the, the word to, to get into our other views of life. Where, where we've had multiple uh, pairs of glasses in, in the, uh, uh, you, you know, in, in our collection. And, you know, so on Sunday we put on one pair and then on Monday we put on another pair. And then when dealing with something else, we put on another pair. When, when, when the real truth of the matter is God wants you to be somebody who views life with only one pair of glasses. And you view everything through that pair of glasses. And you put your absolute trust in that one pair of glasses knowing that it will never lead you wrong. And that one pair of glasses is the word of the living God. So we need to allow this pair of glasses to affect everything that that we see and everything that we view, everything that we do. It's interesting because when you do that, it's amazing what people do on Saturday night. Before Sunday morning comes. That are very not consistent with each other. Where when you're wearing the same pair of glasses all the time. It looks the same way on Saturday night as it does on Sunday morning. So therefore what you do on Saturday and Sunday is not inconsistent. But rather it's very consistent with each other. Hey. Let's look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. You've got to beware of any philosophy that is not according to Christ. If we can just bottom line this verse. Beware of any philosophy that is not according to Christ. Well, I got to tell you, when you, when you uh, want to be a doer of that, that will quickly eliminate a whole lot of possible philosophies that, that you may have on life or a whole lot of possible ways that you may view the world. Because when you see the, the, that word, not according to Christ. Anything that's not taking you to Christ, anything that's not according to Christ, you're staying away from. You know, it's kind of like what 2 Corinthians 10 says, that the, uh, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. And then he said, casting down every uh, imagination and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So think about this. That, that the, the judgment for whether I should think a thought or not think a thought is based on the fact, that, does this cause me and inspire me to obey Christ? If it does, then I let it in. If not, then I've got a bouncer at the door of my brain 
that says you are not allowed entrance, you know, hit the road, Jack, you know, don't come back. Uh, I mean, bottom line is that we need to be very protective of the kind of things that we allow in. Because if it's not according to Christ, or like I quoted to you, 2 Corinthians 10, if it's not inspiring obedience to Christ, you just don't allow that kind of stuff in. And of course, uh, another verse that, that uh, especially those that, that have come regularly on Wednesday nights have no idea that this verse was even in the Bible. That's Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 that says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. There, there's something about the renewing of the mind and, and, and it starts with a willingness for you to allow your mind to be renewed, a, a willingness for, for you to allow God to challenge the way that you've looked at things and adjust you. You know, my wife told the story of when she first got saved and driving down the street one day, and just this thought came into her mind about this, uh, uh, what you would consider a, a hot-button political issue of the day. And, and in her spirit, she felt the voice of the Lord say to her, you don't think the same way about that that you used to. And she said, okay. And it's interesting, think about that. That, that, that to have the importance of having an openness where God can mess with you and say, I know you always thought it was this way and I know this always seemed like it was the right way to you, but can I show up on the scene and talk to you today and redirect you and say, the way you've been going, the way you've been thinking is not the right way. Can you turn around and think differently? And to have a willingness. You see, it, it, it's interesting. This Romans 12 too, the, 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 this idea of having your mind renewed, it, there's got to be a willingness to allow God in. There's got to be a willingness to allow God to have some say-so. Rather than us to be locked in, well, I, I've always thought this way and I've always viewed uh, raising children this way ever since I read Dr. Spook, I mean Dr. Spock, excuse me, and uh, uh, and I've always had this philosophy concerning this and, and so did my, my daddy, my granddaddy, and so why should I be any different? But I got to tell you, and, and nothing wrong with loving daddy and granddaddy. But daddy's not God and granddaddy's not God. God is God. And, and for all of us to be in a position where there's nothing that is not on the table with him to be able to redirect or for, for him to refocus us or for him to flat out say, as he said to my wife, you don't think that way anymore. You got it? Yes, sir. Hallelujah. Now, what, what I'm going to talk about today, and, and you can go so many directions with this, but I just want to keep it simple. I want to talk about the, the worldview regarding the origin of things. And then our, our worldview regarding the road we're on now, and our worldview regarding forever. Our worldview regarding the origin of things. How things got started, where we're at now, and, and, and what, what the, the way we need to see life now, and then the way we need to view life now, and the things that God did in the now to, to affect that view, and then ultimately how we view forever. 
So talking about the origin of things, let me ask you this. How many of you have heard lots of different thoughts regarding the origin of planet Earth and uh, life on Earth? There's a whole lot of ideas out there. You know, and one of the most famous ones of all is that there was this big explosion one day that just happened to result in perfect order. Now, if that's the case, some of y'all with a messy house, if you light some dynamite in your messy house, how many, <laughs> how many of you think there's a chance that you lighting off the dynamite in your messy house and you're going to have a clean house? Yeah. And then these people pick on people of faith. I think it takes more faith to believe that kind of nonsense. Lord have mercy. But, but when talking about the, the origin of things, it's interesting. Let's take it from this standpoint. What did Jesus believe about the origin of things? Because if you're a believer of Jesus, you're a disciple of Jesus, we should think about the origin of things in line with the same way that Jesus did. So you might ask the question, did Jesus believe in the book of Genesis? The word Genesis meaning beginnings, the, word, uh, the book of Genesis being the, 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 the recording of, uh, uh, in, in scripture of, of the earliest uh, history and interactions of mankind. Did Jesus believe it? Let's take an interesting look at things. First of all, let's put that next slide up. God created the world. Mark chapter 13, 19, you see Jesus making that statement very clear that he believed that God created the world. Stated it as fact. Stated it as though it was absolutely non-negotiable. Go ahead to the next one. Nope, that's not it. Go ahead to the next one after that. If you don't got it, I got it. All right, Mark 10, 2. Oh, that's not on my list, so I'll just go ahead and give you what's on my list. Uh, but uh, uh, Mark 10, uh, verse 1 through 9, it talks about the existence of Adam and Eve and God's establishing of the institution of marriage through Adam and Eve. Think about this now. So, so it's a fascinating thing to realize that Jesus believed that Adam and Eve existed and that they were the first male and the female and that God brought them together and then, said what, uh, and then made the statement, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder, which means that Jesus believed in the existence of Adam and Eve and he believed that that was God's institution of marriage when he brought them together. Which, um, oh boy, which also says something about the way he intended it to be. And if he wanted to be any other way, he would have changed it, but he didn't change it. Mankind may change it, but he didn't. But uh, moving right along. <laughs> yeah, you know we're going to mess with you somewhere today. All right. Jesus also believed in the existence of Abel. 
The scripture shows that in Matthew chapter 23, verse 35. Jesus also believed in the existence of Noah and the fact that there really was a flood. Do you realize that? Jesus believed in Noah's flood. Jesus believed in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We see that in Matthew 22, 31 and 32. And also along with Abraham, he believed in the existence of Lot, his nephew. And then besides that, he believed in Lot's wife. And remember that little incident where she got salty, you know what I'm saying? Where she looked back when she shouldn't be looking back. And of course, right along with that, he believed in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus believed in the book of Genesis. Do you? That's a good place to start. When I'm, when I'm examining what I believe and the way I view the world, going right back to the very beginning, say, do I believe in the beginning the way the Bible says the beginning happened? Or do, do I believe otherwise? And so we, we need to examine ourselves in this way because here's, here's the thing. If we're going to go ahead and say that we're going to do this and we're going to do this God's way, we're going to do this all the way, then we might as well just go ahead and do it all the way and, and uh, align ourselves with, with God's correct way of thinking and say, if God is God, then I'm going to go ahead and go whole hog. Uh, I, I'm, I'm taking the plunge. I'm not holding anything back. I'm going to believe everything he says about everything. Hallelujah. Having the word of God as final authority in your life regarding conduct and regarding the way you see everything about the world. Now, interesting here is that along with the need to recognize God's role in the origin of creation, believers must also realize that the condition of his creation today is not the condition in which he originally made it. We must acknowledge that something happened along the way that resulted in this fallen condition. And that's what the Bible reveals to us, especially in Genesis chapter 3. We, we, we get to see that the way that God initially made things is not the way it is now. And you can know that for sure based on the fact that uh, uh, when, you, when you examine some scriptures, like for instance over in Psalm 8 and verse 5 and 6, if you got that, you can put it up. That's Psalm 8, verse 5 and 6. It says, you've made him, talking about man, a little lower than the angels, literally a little lower than Elohim, a little lower than God. And you've crowned him with glory and honor. Next verse. And you've made him to have dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet. This is the way that God originally made things. This is the status that God originally gave to mankind. But you know what? You can look around and see a whole lot of people that aren't so crowned with glory and honor. You can look around and you see people that are being dominated instead of having dominion. You can look around and see people being under things and under other people rather than having all things under their feet. What happened? Romans 3, 23 happened. For all have sinned 
and fall short of the glory of God. So you see that this man who once had glory and honor as his crown fell short of that glory. And the way that happened was because of Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Therefore, just as though one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. So that means this Adam that we just uh, made reference to a, a few moments ago, that by him, him being the one man, sin got into this world, and therefore death came through sin, and so therefore the death that came in through sin ended up passing on to everybody because everybody sinned. Now evolutionary thought would lead us to believe that man's getting better and better and better and more and more and more enlightened. But what does the Bible say? How about Second uh, Timothy 3 verse 13? But evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Being stupid and helping other people get stupid. That's my translation. I'm just having fun with you. So here's the thing. God's view of the origin of things needs to be our view of the origin of things. And then we transition from the origin to the way we need to see things in the now. Right here, right now, at this point of the journey, to continue to see things through the same glasses and with the same perspective as the way God sees things. There is good and there is evil in the world. But the way that God originally made things, there was no evil. The way God originally made things is well reflected in this. This is a part of Genesis 1.31, right at the end of Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1.31 says, Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was... It was very good. Now, the question I'd have to ask you here, if we're going to read and read carefully and make sure we're reading accurately, how much of it was very good? Everything that he had made. So, what happened? Is the question. Genesis chapter 3 happened. Where the fact that God made mankind and God made mankind not as robots who would say, yes, I hear and obey. But God took the risk that his boy and his girl in the garden would not listen to his way and not follow his direction and would mess the thing up. And it really wasn't a risk. Because a risk is something where if you don't know the way things are going to come out, then, you know, you say it might work, it might not work. That's when you're taking a risk. 
But you see, because God knows all, God already knew what they were going to do. And, you know, of course, all of us brainiacs want to ask the question, well, if God knew what was going to happen, why didn't he do it differently? Yeah. Don't you love those questions? It's kind of like the, the, the people that ask, and, and this is interesting because this is related to how we view the world. You, you ever get asked the question, well, God's all powerful, so why doesn't God just get involved in this situation and fix it? He can, so why doesn't he? To which I want to ask, well, why didn't God just step in the middle of that transaction there with the serpent at the tree of knowledge of good and evil and put an end to that? Because the question to ask is not why God didn't stop your mess. The question to ask is why didn't God stop that? Because if he stopped that, there would be no mess. And yet God did not stop the mess from happening. He entrusted everything into his man, Adam. And said, there's just one thing you need to pay attention to. You got all these trees. I just need you to stay away from one. And curiosity killed the cat. And therefore, now, you've got something in the world that God did not create, that was not part of his original plan, that was not part of his original design, and there is now evil in the world. But you've got to be sure of this one thing. And it's interesting, when you look at some of the ancient books of the Bible, even the, the, the book of Job, you see a mindset in Job where he really sincerely thought that all those crazy things that happened to him was the work of the Lord. He really thought that, sincerely thought that, sincerely believed that. Of course, we have the benefit of reading the book and we get to see the, the work of the enemy behind the scenes. But Job, from his perspective, he thought that it was God doing it to him. Now think about this. Job did better thinking that God was both the source of good and evil in his life than most of us do knowing that God's the source of the good. What's wrong with that picture? I mean, I think we should go ahead and step it up and, and be a little more advanced. Because we know more than he knew. He didn't realize what was going on behind the scenes. He honestly thought that was God doing that to him. And still loved God. Still thought God was worth serving. Even though he thought that God was giving him all the good things in his life. And all the bad things in his life. Well, How much is God worth serving and loving? When you know that he's all good and he's not bad at all. But it's interesting is that as time goes on, we see in Scripture that there's some lines drawn, some clear lines of delineation between where good things come from and where bad things come from. Verses like over in the book of James in chapter 1 and verse 17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. 
and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. And that last line is so important. The fact that he will not vary, he won't turn. He won't vary, he won't turn. That means he's not going to give you one kind of gift one day and another kind of gift another day. He's not going to, you know, good gifts and perfect gifts and then, oh, let's see, he... He just feels different one day and wants to give you another kind of gift. The one thing about God, there's no varying, there's no turning, there's no surprises, there's nothing he's going to do differently. And to further establish the line, what's God doing? What's what's the source of evil doing is John chapter 10 and verse 10 that says, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it abundantly, more abundantly. So understand this, that one of the most important parts of our view of the world is understanding that, yeah, there's good and there's evil, but recognizing the source of each. That God's the source of good. Satan, the thief, is the source of evil. And so therefore... If there is anything that you know is not God that's going on in your life, then if it's not God, you can be sure of this, that it's going to steal from you, it's going to kill you, and it's going to destroy you. But why do we fool ourselves and play around with things that we know aren't God? Why do we do that? Why do we do that? As though it's kind of like the game of wanting to see how close to the edge can I get without falling off. It's the idea of playing this game of how much can I get away with? Because you know what? Getting away with stuff is dangerous because when you get away with something, it desensitizes you. And you think, yeah, I can get away with that. Because I got away with it the last time. So you push that envelope and push that envelope a little further and a little further until you get burned. So mankind is certainly in a mess, isn't he? And that is why a Savior had to come. <laughs> and talk about your answer to the now and your worldview of the now is that you were a mess and needed a savior and Jesus was the savior and all the other people in your life that don't have them yet that are still a mess, he's the savior for them too. Amen. He's everybody's savior. He's not, he's not, you know, it's not one of these cases, you know, you, you get to hear stuff like this all the time. Well, you have your truth and I have mine. You, 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 you have your way and I have mine. Your way works for you, my way works for me. Your truth works for you, my truth works for me. To which I say, fooey. I say, yeah, that, that, yeah, what book is that in? That's in the book of First Balonians. I'll tell you where that's at. First Balonians right next to Second Imaginations. That's what book that's in now. Hey. Because truth is truth. Truth is truth. And you know what? You, you see, that kind of worldview has come into education. That's, that's why someone can say two plus two is three and get a gold star for trying hard. 
How many of you work in education and have some kind of hint what I'm talking about? That, that, that kind of way of thinking, that, that, that kind of way of, of viewing the world and even viewing education. No, that's not the way it works. Two plus two is four. Still is. Still is. Always going to be. But, but you know, it's interesting. See, all, all these things are just signs that we needed a Savior, and the Savior came. You see, there, there was a man named Adam who came and messed things up. That's why Jesus is called the last Adam. For, for as the, the whole human race was in Adam, and Adam messed it up for the whole human race, God could see to it that the whole human race would be in Jesus and that Jesus would stand as the substitute and the representative of the human race so that anybody who believed in the work that Jesus did could get the benefit of what Jesus did for them just like they got the detriment of what the first Adam did for them. And I want to check this out. This is great. Woohoo! This is a, a paraphrase of Romans 5.16. What this is, this is a combination of, uh, of several translations of this verse put together. That's why I call it a paraphrase, because it's not, not all one translation. So if we got that, I'd love to put it up. What came through Jesus is not like what came through Adam. Now this is understanding that Jesus is the last Adam. All right? What came through Jesus is not like what came through Adam. What came through Adam was forced onto all his descendants, and they had no choice in the matter. Let's keep on going. What came through Jesus is received voluntarily through faith. Adam's one offense brought judgment, which resulted in all of us being guilty. Keep on going. Jesus bore our many offenses so that we could receive his free gift and be declared not guilty. So I want you to realize something today. What the first man did got forced on you. But what the second Adam did, what the last Adam did, what he did for you is absolutely voluntary. He's not, even though he knows how bad you need it, and even though he knows how much it'll change your life, he is not forcing it on you. He made it available to you, but this one is received voluntarily, which means you could voluntarily reject it. So if you want to know how the Savior is different, how, how the one who brings life is different from the one who brings death and steals and kills and destroys? That's one big way. The enemy wants to force it on you. And Jesus, even when it comes to eternal life, won't force it on you. Make it available and say, make the choice. My, my, my. Now, this is the way we need to view the world as believers Understanding that there's a Savior and understanding the way that he had to deal with things to get us back on track. Do you, do you want to see an amazing thing in Scripture that you would just pass right by? You want to see it? Yes. You heard of John 3.16? How many of you ever heard of John 3.16? Well, we're not going to look at this verse right now. 
We're going to look at Joshua 3.16. Now this is Joshua 3.16 out of the New Living Translation. Now this is when the, the children of Israel were about to pass over into the promised land. Those of you that, that know a little bit about the Bible and uh, about the, the history of the Jewish people would remember that, the point where Moses was dead and Joshua was now leading the people and leading them across the Jordan River into the promised land. And it says, now, now something miraculous happened, and this is what it's describing, that the waters parted so that they could get across the river. The water above that point began backing up a great distance away at a town called Adam. Scholars believe that that was literally a town or city that was built by Adam, which is near Zarethan. And the water below that point flowed onto the Dead Sea until the riverbed was dry. Then all the people crossed over near the town of Jericho. What on earth are you seeing in that verse that is so special, Pastor Ray? Can I tell you? You see... This very river where this happened, and keep that verse up there, this very same river was also the river where John the Baptist was baptizing. And one day, Jesus came to him to get baptized right in that very river and was proclaimed the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Well, you want to know what the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world did? He took all the sin that went back to Adam and let it flow on on down into the Dead Sea. Hallelujah. You see the symbolism of that? You see that just like the water was up at the city of Adam on one end, and it stood up like a wall, and everything else flowed down into the Dead Sea, that Jesus, by his act of salvation for you, he dealt with the problem all the way back to Adam, and all the sin and all the trouble that was caused by that flowed into the sea. Hallelujah. Glory be to God forever. You can see a little John 3.16 in Joshua 3.16. Put up the next slide here. Let's examine what Jesus did. Satan used the tree to get us in the mess. God used the tree to get us out of the mess. Satan used the tree to get us in the mess. That's what Genesis 3.6 shows. That tree of knowledge of good and evil. But then there's another tree that God used to get us out of the mess. That's Galatians chapter 3.13, which says that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Satan used the tree to get us in the mess. God used the tree to get us out of the mess. And let me tell you, that the reason he wanted to get us out of the mess, he's got something in mind. It's called another tree that, that we call the tree of life. Whose leaves are for the healing of the nations, Revelation tells us. See, Adam and Eve didn't get to that tree when they were in the garden. But I want you to know the tree of life. <laughs> hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where we're going, glory to God. And, and you know what? Rather, rather than you being in the position of getting yourself in a mess, you eat from the tree of life. That gets you out of the mess. As a matter of fact, rather than an eternal mess, you get into eternal blessing. Glory be to God. 
You know, while we're at it, I should tell you one other thing about a tree. How many of you remember, I think Pastor John may have even referred to it recently, when, when the Israelites were, were out in, in the wilderness and were complaining because the, 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 the water was bitter at the one certain location. They just got out of Egypt and were complaining about the bitter water. And God instructed Moses to take a tree and throw it in the water. And when the tree got thrown in the water, it said that the waters were made sweet. Well, can I tell somebody here today, if you got something bitter going on in your life, you need to sweeten it up. You need to get the tree involved in that bitter situation because when you do that, that's the way to turn that thing around and make the bitter sweet. Say, what on earth would... God tell Moses to throw a tree in there because he's painting a picture. He's painting a picture. He's connecting some dots. Want everybody to know, yeah, it's a tree that is going to fix this problem because it's a tree that's going to fix the biggest problem of all. Hallelujah. And so we see God's plan from the beginning, how it was lost, and then how mankind was saved. Let's look at this. I, this is called the circle of glory. The circle of glory. Go ahead and put it up there. The father of glory sent the Lord of glory for the sake of his creation, who was originally crowned with glory, but due to sin, fell from glory so that they could be brought back again to glory, which Hebrews 2 says, and ultimately be presented before him as glorious. Now think about this. This is the full circle of things. This is God's original intent, the fall, what God did to get him back, and the way it's ultimately going to get wrapped up. That God, who is the father of glory, sent Jesus the Lord of glory, and why did he do it? For the sake of his creation. The one who was originally crowned with glory and honor, as we read in Psalm 8. But then after that, he... He, he sinned and fell short of the glory of God, as Romans 3.23 says. And then by Jesus doing what he did, he brought back him, that, that fallen mankind, again to glory, which Hebrews 2 says. And then as Ephesians 5.27 says, that, that he will present to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and without blemish. So you get to see the whole circle of the way that God did things. The way God did it is just so masterful. And already knew, already knew this all the way from the beginning. You know, God never had an idea. You know, I, it, it, it's amazing. We think, you know, we got an idea. That, that's our way of saying something just dawned on us. Nothing dawns on God. God is God. And, and, and you know, you, you see, that affects our view of things. Even, even that little idea right there. Because when we realize that God does not just have ideas and things don't dawn on him, then we realize that there's, there's something that's very intentional and purposeful about the way God does things. That, that, that there's a, a, a purposeful and an intentional path that he takes where he, the, the one who sees, the one who looks ahead, 
can even see the, the speed bumps and the road bumps along the way and be able to know, I know those things are coming. So I, I, I've, I've already got a plan in place. Because I know those things are coming, but I already got a plan to make the lemons lemonade. And I already got a plan to make the rough way smooth so that ultimately, even what looks like the scenic route to you was just so perfectly planned all along by God. Mm -mm -mm. Talk about a way of viewing the world. And that's why we we, we, got to train ourselves here to, to see things as he sees it. To understand that this is not multiple choice. As a matter of fact, let, let me share with you God's multiple choice test. All right? Let's, let's look at Deuteronomy 30, 19. This is how God does a multiple choice test. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you. That I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. And if you're not smart enough to figure out which the right answer is, I'm going to tell you, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. That's how God gives a multiple choice test. He gives you the answer. He says, if you're not smart enough to figure out the right choice, I'm just going to flat tell you what the right answer is. So we see the view that we need to have for the origin of things and the view that we have for the now. But now the view forever. The view of forever. And the times to come. Woo! The forever to come. You know, eternal life Very, very common term used in Scripture. And as it's used in Scripture, it certainly refers to more than eternal existence. Because if that was all it meant, then the sinner would have eternal life just as much as the saint does. Except one lives forever with the Lord and the other lives forever in the lake of fire. So there's a a distinction to be made between eternal life and eternal existence because all spirits will eternally exist. Eternal life is the infinite quality of life that only God can give. See, when we think of eternal life, we automatically think of the quantity But when God talks about eternal life, he's talking about the quality. Because you see, he already knows that by by the sheer fact that you are a spirit, spirits are eternal. So he's not concerned about your quantity of time. He already knows you're going to live forever. Your spirit, spirits live forever. So when God talks about eternal life, He's not talking about eternal existence. He's not talking about the quantity. He's talking about the quality. But when it comes to eternal existence, everybody gets that. Both the saved and the lost. And both are going to spend it somewhere. Matthew 25, 46.
Jesus is talking about the sheep and the goats, the sheep and the goats. Let me use proper English there. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So both are experiencing something that's forever. One into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So you know what? Everybody's got the quantity. Everybody's living forever. When the Bible talks about eternal life, it's not talking about the forever part as much as it's talking about the quality of life that God gives. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Hallelujah. And we, as believers, have a responsibility to view life from the perspective of forever. As we look at the the beginning of things, as we look at the way things are now, and as we look towards the end, we have a responsibility to think in terms of eternity and to think from an eternal perspective. Because if we're going to view things as God views them, see things as God sees them, then a big part of that is us recognizing the seriousness, the soberness of eternity, both for ourselves and for those around us. How many decisions do we make all the time while giving no thought at all to the possible eternal ramifications that those decisions could have on us and on people around us. Flippantly making decisions without making decisions with eternity in view. This is so, so vital. And you know, forever is not a comfortable thought to think about. It's not an easy thought to think about. But we've got to realize that whether it's comfortable or not, forever is forever. We will live forever. Everybody will live forever. Everybody will exist somewhere forever. And that we, by having an eternal perspective, can not only do what is necessary to have ourselves ready, for eternity. But also, we can have the fire and passion we need to have others ready for eternity as well. So that when we go into eternity, we don't go empty-handed. 2 Corinthians 4.18. Talking about an eternal perspective. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Wow. So, you're living in a temporary world and you got to pay attention to some temporary things. And God knows that and God understands that. However, at the same time, can you get so caught up in temporary stuff? The stuff of the, the day, the stuff of the moment, that you can 
lose track of the fact that this, this whole picture that we're looking at is bigger than today. It's bigger than this week. It's bigger than this month. It's bigger than this year. That when you look at the big picture, the big picture is an eternal picture. Can I look at life and make decisions in life and put my focus in life in a way where eternal things are prioritized more than temporary things? Let me just reiterate what I said to you a minute ago. How important this is that when we view our lives in the view of eternity, in the light of eternity, it so motivates us not only to keep our own selves right, but to passionately reach out for others. Because if you look at every person you see and you think eternity, if you look at every person you see and you think they will spend forever somewhere. That is a big motivating factor in what we do, in what we say, in how we say it, in our, our approach to people, our approach to ourselves, to make sure that we're shining the light and representing the Lord accurately, being a good ambassador of Christ rather than acting uh, uh, like, the, uh, like the country we're in rather than the country we're from. That's why Jesus said we're in the world, but we're not of the world. Because there's no problem with a boat and water. There's a problem with water in the boat. He knows you're here, and he knows what you're surrounded by. The issue is not the boat being in water. The issue is when we let water in the boat. But how can we avoid the water in the boat? Colossians 3, verse 1 and 2. And we're going to wrap it up right here. Colossians 3, 1 and 2. If you then, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Next verse. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. And so, what we've done today it's just kind of a summary because you can get into so many nuances and in one day it's just not possible to do that justice. But if you can get three things right, get three things right. Where things got started, All right. how the mess happened, which led to the now, but also here in the now, the Savior came to bring the solution to how we can get back to the way God originally intended things to be. And also to view things from eternity. Knowing that this thing is forever. God's plan is forever. And for someone to miss God's plan forever is tragic. Because it never needed to happen. It's such a crime for someone to die and to go into an eternal lake of fire when they don't have to. God's got a way out, and his name is Jesus. Hallelujah. Let's pray today. Lord, we honor you. We give you glory and praise. Thank you, Father, for the spirit of God in this place that, that's working on the hearts of people.
Lord, I pray for all of us that, that we get our perspective right, view things from a biblical worldview, from a biblical perspective. See you as we ought to see you. See each other as we ought to see each other. And understand the plan according to the way you drew out the plan. Lord, here we are. A Sunday after a snowstorm. In this building in Seekonk, Massachusetts, thinking about forever. Lord, may forever impact our hearts. May forever have an impact on us that for the rest of our lives will lead us into the, the, the road of bringing the gospel to people, examining ourselves, keeping our own selves right. But Lord, that it impacts us in a way that, that we look out for people, look out for those all around us that we see each, each and every day that are lost and without God, knowing that we have the very, very thing that can save them and turn their life around and change their eternal destination. Thank you, Lord, for this.